Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you ever heard of ASMR? It's Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. Maybe you've stumbled onto an ASMR video on YouTube. It's their, It's hard to describe. They're close-up. They're maybe the slow-talking whisper videos. And to some of us, you think, well, this is kind of odd. What is this? And maybe you don't get the point. But some people get a completely different experience from them. And here to explain why that might be, where is the difference there in us, is Dr. Joanna Greer, Senior Lecturer in Psychology at Northumbria University. Dr. Greer, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me. First of all, can you explain to us what is ASMR? So ASMR, as you've explained, it's the Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. And it's an involuntary response. Uh, It starts in the head and the neck, and it expands down the body quite rapidly. Um, And it's induced with these videos that you've just discussed um, just now, um, which are sort of form of role-playing where people talk very quietly. There's some tapping. There's lots of different kinds of triggers. Um, And for the people who watch these videos and who are able to experience this sensation, commonly referred to as tingles, um, it's a very pleasurable experience. And many people use this to help relax, to sleep, um, and even to help states of depression. Well, now I'm wondering, Dr. Greer, why haven't I ever felt this before? Are there just some people who don't get that? I think that's exactly it. I think some people get it and some people don't. it's very subjective. Um, I think as well, if you, there's some people who have never heard of it before and maybe don't um, sort of aren't aware of it. Um, and some people who watch these videos don't experience it. And again, it's subjective. Some people don't actually like them. But for the people who do like them and do um, experience the tingles, it's a, a very pleasant sensation and there's a lot of benefits for them, which is why a lot of people actually watch these videos. Okay, and what are those benefits? So what, what, how could we benefit from this? Well, the people who watch these videos um, typically do so for these sort of mental health benefits that I've referred to. Um, some people just enjoy them. It's very much a subjective um, experience and a subjective reason why they actually watch them. But the people who tend to be real, what we call aficionados, do so very much because they find real benefits on a day-to-day basis. So is this a new tool when it comes to, say, fighting anxiety? Well, this is what we um, found from our study. So there's been a little bit of research from an empirical perspective looking at how ASMR might benefit individuals. Um, So, again, 
like any form of therapeutic intervention, it's very much down to the individual. But the main thing that we found from our study was, first of all, obviously, the people who could experience ASMR benefited from the ASMR videos and showed a reduction in their anxiety. But what we also found was that actually when we look at the characteristics of people who can experience ASMR, uh, which was this sort of personality traits of neuroticism and higher anxiety, when we actually looked at just those particular levels of well, uh, as well, it didn't actually matter whether you could experience ASMR or not. It suggested that actually... Um, if you tend to have these elevated levels of neuroticism or anxiety, you might actually benefit from an ASMR video, even if you don't actually experience the tingles. Okay, so this is interesting. So then could this be moving forward, this kind of opens up a whole new area to help people who suffer from anxiety? We certainly hope so. Again, we can't suggest that it's um, one tool that will fit all. Like any form of intervention, I think the individual will respond differently to a different kind of intervention. But the thing about ASMR is that it's, this study has suggested that yes, actually, maybe we do need to consider ASMR um, along with the other kind of interventions that are available for anxiety. That is so interesting. Well, Dr. Greer, thank you for your time on that this morning. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I learned something new. That's Dr. Joanna Greer, Senior Lecturer in Psychology at Northumbria University, where they did a study about these ASMR videos, which is Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. This is new to me. And learning that some people, when they watch these videos, uh, you know, and they experience this ASMR feeling, this the tingles, as she put it, it is really beneficial in helping to relax some people and help them deal with their anxiety. And yet other people can watch the videos and not get the same, you know, feeling from it at all, which fascinates me, which is why we do Science with Simi. A lot about infrastructure and the readiness that uh, our infrastructure has if we have a disaster. Look what happened last November. You know what? We'd probably gotten lazy when it came to talking about whether or not we were ready for a big flood in recent years. And now it feels like it is top of mind. So which city, community, you know, province in the country is prepared for this? Well, the answer to this might surprise you, actually. It's also the topic of the new reality this weekend on Global News. Joining us now is Krista Hesse to talk about that. Good morning, Krista. Hi, Simi. So what is it that you took a look at here? Did you take a look at infrastructure readiness right across the country? Yeah, we spoke with experts who are familiar with kind of national trends, um, who have studied how major cities compare, um, as well as talked to local mayors who told us some of the issues that they're facing when it comes to updates to infrastructure and getting adaptation measures put in place. Okay, and what is this to combat? Like, Are we talking about flooding? Because here in BC, flooding is certainly a big issue. Yeah, adaptation can can cover any type of natural disaster. But on this show, we're looking at flooding because it's the most costly and frequent natural disaster in Canada, as BC viewers know all too well. That is so true. Okay, so what did you find? Now, I know that there's one particular Canadian city that seems to be better prepared than others, isn't there? Yeah, so we actually traveled to Edmonton and spoke to the former mayor there who is putting in a pretty ambitious plan to upgrade the city to make it more flood prepared. They're flood proofing critical infrastructure, adding green infrastructure that will kind of divert and store water in the case of a flood. 
So Edmonton is actually one of the best flood-prepared cities in the country, which might surprise a lot of people, but they have suffered through a lot of major storms in the past. Uh, The former mayor, Don Iveson, told us that the 2013 Calgary floods really woke him up to the flood threat in Alberta. And so they've put this really ambitious plan in place. Um, They're only two years into it. They got a lot more work to do, but experts are saying they're on the right path. Okay, how did they get that done? Like if they, you know what I mean? Like here in BC, we talk and talk and talk about it. Nothing seems to get done, but it seems like in Edmonton, they're, they're very, that's forward thinking. Yeah, absolutely. So it was a couple things, and I don't want to make it sound too simple, but it was a mix of political will at the local level, um, a really ambitious uh, local utility, and, and getting some federal funding to make that happen. So Edmonton did receive $53 million of federal funding uh, to put towards this adaptation plan, but Edmontonians are also paying for it through their utility bills. So EBCOR, the local utility there, has actually taken over kind of the flooding file in Edmonton from the government, put together this plan and is is working on putting these things in place so that the next time a one in 100 uh, storm hits the city, they're going to be better prepared through their drainage system, through this green infrastructure. And they're even offering homeowners uh, free flooding assessments. Um, so people are able to find out, are they in a flood zone? Are they in a low-lying neighborhood? And experts told us that's really innovative. It's easy to do. Anybody can do it. But a lot of places simply aren't doing it. Oh, this is fascinating. All right, Krista, I look forward to seeing it this weekend. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. That's Krista Hesse with The New Reality, which is our global news current affairs show. You can catch it Saturdays at 8 o'clock on Global. And this week they're talking about flooding, infrastructure, and preparedness And Edmonton is surprisingly the city that they looked at right across Canada that is the most prepared for a flooding event. Now, you'd like to think in BC that we're going to get on it, right? And I know that Abbotsford Mayor Henry Braun is closely watching to see what the next federal and provincial budgets will do in that regard. So I think there's a lot more discussion that we need to have in this province too about the issue of flooding. Coming up next, though, we're going to turn our attention to federal politics. What is going on with the federal conservatives in Canada? There's been a lot of discussion this week about the future and the direction of the federal conservative party. It's an issue that was also addressed by Aaron O'Toole, who was ousted this week. Have a listen to some of what he had to say after his caucus had voted to remove him. So my message to my party is the same I will give to the prime minister, and members of parliament on all sides of the House of Commons. Audi alterum partum. Hear the other side. Listen to all voices, not just the echoes from your own tribe. Realize that our country is divided and people are worried. Work together because how we as leaders act now will define the next generation. That's Aaron O'Toole there, who up until a few days ago was the leader of the federal conservatives. So what happens now? Is this going to be an ideological battle to control the conservative party? Joining us now is Trevor Harrison, political sociologist at the University of Lethbridge, former director of the Parkland Institute. Trevor, thank you for being here. Uh, glad to be here, Sammy. What do you think about when you see, when you see what's happening to the conservatives? What kind of fork in the road are they at here? 
Oh, uh, several forks, <laughs> in fact. The, the party is pretty divided and has been for some time. In fact, they, uh, is certainly going back over the last uh, 20 years or so. And and what you're seeing is kind of a fight over the uh, the soul and, and the vision of what the party should be. But there's so many different factions there from uh, social conservatives. There's probably still a few of the old uh, red Tories, although many of those were chased out. Corporate types, uh, people tied to uh, provincial rights uh, interests, um, it's uh, and libertarians. It's uh, it's quite a mixed bag of people, and they agree on some things and they disagree on an awful lot more. Right. So, is this kind of what we see happening in the United States? It's very similar to what you saw in the United States in uh, the uh, in the case of the Republican Party. Uh, it got taken over by really beginning with the Tea Party movement and then Donald Trump. Um, Even many old Republicans uh, would say that they don't recognize the party any longer. So it's moved so dramatically to the right. Uh, The bad thing for the United States is, of course, you have a uh, really polarized situation now between two parties that they can't even speak to each other. Um, I fear something similar could happen in Canada, although there's a lot of checks and balances here. So uh, I suspect it's it may not happen that quickly, but it's always a danger that the Conservative Party will also veer very much to the right as the Republicans have. Right, but then, so if that's the way it goes, then isn't that that's the choice of the people who belong to the Conservative Party? That's the choice of those people. It will also be the choice of uh, voters whether or not they actually choose to support it. And, uh, you know, if you look at the polls and surveys over years, that's not where most Canadians are. Most Canadians are are somewhere around the center, center right, center left, whatever. So if you veer too far one way or another, you probably can't get a majority of voters. Um, and I think Aaron O'Toole actually, and some conservative leaders understand that, but, um, of course, he flip-flopped a lot, and uh, that was a problem for him. But uh, I think his his instincts were right, and yet I think there's a lot of people in the party don't want to do that. What they want is a hard, right, definable party. And is that saleable to a lot of Canadians? Probably not, at least from what we know in the polls. Right, so Aaron O'Toole did it, but I guess maybe he didn't do a good job of explaining it to the people in his party, what was going on? Because it seems to me, Trevor, that Stephen Harper was was masterful at this. Yeah, Harper certainly was able to, uh, you know, pull those threads together and uh, just sort of through sheer will, I think. And he laid down the law in certain respects, too. For, for one thing, he did lay down the law pretty clearly about uh, the social conservative wing, that you know, there were certain things there he was not going to touch. Um, what you saw with the leadership race before was Peter McKay was very much sort of in that former red Tory right of center group, uh, to do, to defeat him, uh, Aaron O'Toole had to go sharply to the right. But again, his instincts were, we've got to move the party closer to the center. And that was a problem for him. Right, but he didn't also explain it very well either. He didn't perhaps maybe do what Stephen Harper did behind the scenes because there was clearly a difference there. I mean, Stephen Harper moved the party in 2011 slightly to the center to to make that work. Yeah, and, and you know, the other, of course, the other variable, we always think that uh, it's what the party does or what the leader does, but it's also what are the other parties doing. And Stephen Harper, of course, benefited greatly from the disarray in the Liberal Party at that oh, point. That's true. 
Um, so you know, you're not totally working in a vacuum there. And uh, right now, I suspect there is a lot of there are a lot of Canadians not that enamored of uh, Justin Trudeau. Um, but, uh, you know, they want to see a, a viable option that is not going to veer too far to the right. And, uh, that's, that's not what's kind of on offer here. I mean, they, the trucker protest has kind of, uh, brought all of that very much to the fore here. So, um, yeah, I think the conservative party is at least for a period of time in some real disarray. And uh, the real question is, who who can they pick who can actually merge those uh, different wings of the party? Yeah, there, there hasn't been a rush to say, I'm throwing my hat in the ring yet, has there? No, and some of the people that I suspect a few people would love to see uh, join have definitively said, no, I'm really not interested, <laughs> such as uh, Rona Ambrose, uh, who is kind of perpetually brought up there as somebody the uh, many of the party stalwarts would like to see. But um, no, nobody's really rushing in. Mm, we'll see what happens. Trevor, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, for sure. That's, Take care. You too. That's Trevor Harrison, political sociologist at the University of Lethbridge, former director of the Parkland Institute, talking about this kind of crossing the road or forking the road that the conservatives find themselves at. Now, if you're a member of that party or you vote for that party, what kind of leader do you want to see in place there? What direction should they go in? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. There's something in Alberta called Bill 1. It is the Critical Infrastructure Defense Act. It was passed about two years ago, kind of at the height of the protests that we saw that were against the construction of the coastal gas link natural gas pipeline in the northern part of our province. And that was the response in Alberta. And essentially, this legislation prohibits any person or company from blocking, obstructing construction or maintenance damaging or entering a place that is deemed essential infrastructure. And the list of essential infrastructure includes pipelines, railways, oil and gas sites, and highways. Okay, so take that into account and then look at what's happening in southern Alberta right now on the highway near Coots, Alberta. We spoke to the mayor yesterday. The highway is blocked. Trucks could not get even south across the border. That was blocking critical infrastructure. And yet... There hasn't been a whole lot of movement to make sure, use Bill 1, and get that open. So what is with the discrepancy and that disparity there? Well, joining us now is Chief Alan Adam of the Athabasca Chippewa First Nation, who is definitely talking about this. Chief Adam, thank you for joining us. Yeah, good morning, and uh, thank you for having me on the uh, radio this morning. Let's talk about the situation in Alberta. When you see what's happening down there at the border, what goes through your mind? Well, what goes through my mind is I, I look at this uh, bill, bill one, and why is it not being uh, applied to this uh, scenario? And you know, when I look at bill one, what does bill one really mean? Um, first, what First Nation it only applies to, and everybody else is exempt. Um, is that that's so how well, it feels? That's how it feels. Like you know, it's it's like a slap in the face, and uh, we have to stand by and watch this. And uh, you know, what else can we do? It's you know, I I feel sorry for you know the truckers' association in regards to what their demands are and what they, what they deem is right. But then, uh, it's still a critical infrastructure, and the government and um, is failing to uh, apply uh, their legislation that they put in place. And um, 
we're standing by and watching. That's so that's so interesting, Chief Adam, because you're saying, like, listen, you have some sympathy to what they're talking about, but at the same time, you're saying treat them the way we got treated. That's true. Like, the, the law does apply, and it is a double standard law. Nobody is above the law here. And, uh, you know, start handing out tickets and start, start giving them tickets and fines if they have to, like they do with us. When you see protesters from First Nations on, on blockades, whatever, you see the RCMP carrying our people away. What kind of re- what kind of reaction have you gotten to talking? Because you've been vocal in talking about this. You put out a statement yesterday too. What kind of reaction has that gotten, particularly like from politicians? It's 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 very positive because um, you know uh, from uh, except from the UCP, uh, there's nothing, no response from them. But there's a public outcry towards Bill One, and Bill One has to be abolished. Like it does not apply here, and if it does not apply here, then it does not apply at all. And, and it's very, it's very uh, discriminatory, you know. And uh, we have to look at today's standards. And if and if we're going to continue on going down this path, uh, why are we continuing on talking on good faith? So you feel like okay. So what? Why are we dealing with all these issues? Why are we negotiating and doing things and following the rules when that doesn't seem to be happening here? It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. To, you know. And. Uh, you cannot bend the rules once you once you apply them, and and legislation is legislation by law. It applies to everybody. No one is above it whatsoever, and they cannot rechange the course of history when it was applied. They could only make amends to it, or or else they have to abolish it when it does not apply to all standards of human beings. Chief Adam, I thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's Chief Alan Adam of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation making a very good point. He said, you know, they sympathize with what the truck convoy was originally protesting. They have some sympathy for the issue. But they said the the lack of application of Bill 1 and the laws about keeping infrastructure, you know, free of protest, they said it's just not fair because when it was protesting a natural gas pipeline, you know, it was like drag people out, arrest them, go to court, get rid of them. And yet on this hand, that same situation they say is not being applied and they see it as really unfair. Now, that is something that I know is going to continue to get a lot of attention. They have certainly been bringing it up in the last couple of days. More to come on that. We know the Omicron variant of COVID-19 has had a real impact on jobs right across the country. Just when we thought we were heading towards getting everything back open again, it hit. Things started to close down. And so now we also know what the actual unemployment numbers were for the month of January. Those just came out this morning from StatsCan. There were provinces that definitely lost jobs in January, provinces like Ontario, uh, and that meant that the national unemployment rate actually crept up. But here in BC, bit of a different story. Let's talk more about that now with Jobs Minister Ravi Kailan, who joins us. Thank you so much for being back here. Good morning, Cindy. Thanks for having me. You must be happy with how BC did. I mean, the BC rate actually improved from 5.4% to 5.1%. Uh, yeah, I, I am pleased with the, the numbers uh, that came up this month. I mean, uh, you've highlighted it, it was a tough month for uh, all of Canada. I mean, 200,000 jobs lost is, is a pretty large number. But here in BC, uh, we actually gained employment. Uh, and our unemployment rate is at now 5.1%, which is um, where we were at pre-pandemic levels. 
Uh, and so that's really positive. It shows the, both the resiliency of our people, but also uh, our economy. And where were some of the losses? I noticed that it wasn't as great, say, in areas like construction and hospitality, uh, which seemed to be a bit of a surprise for the construction industry. Uh, well, you know, we did have some restrictions in place. We do have some restrictions in place. So some employment numbers are impacted uh, or spread out in, in those sectors. But we did see a, a larger decline in agriculture, um, and it could be a little more seasonal-related. Um, but we did see, obviously, an increase in retail, uh, increase in natural resources. And overall, um, you know, considering uh, all uh, provinces are facing this wave together, uh, for us to come out uh, with a net increase of jobs, I think it's uh, just very positive. Okay, so then looking ahead, though, what are the challenges? Uh, there's always challenges, uh, and you know we're uh, we're fortunate here in BC that we are, have higher employment now than we did prior to the pandemic. We're we're seeing a record number of people from other provinces move to British Columbia, but we do have challenges. We have uh, you know a, a different challenge than we've had in many years past, which is we have more employment than we do people, and so uh, you know investment in skills training that we've been making, we're going to continue to need to do more of that. Uh, we're going to need to continue to find ways to uh, get more immigration here. Uh, and those that are unemployed, that are out of the market, we're going to have to find them uh, ways and tools to get back into the labor market. Yeah, what are you hearing from employers then? Because that was what you just said there was really interesting, that we have more employment than we have people. So what are businesses and business owners telling you? We're hearing that from uh, almost every sector, uh, that... Uh, you know, uh, we, we may still be in the fifth wave here, um, but we have job opportunities and everybody is looking for talent. And, and so that's, that's a good problem to have for uh, British Columbia, but we have work to do. Uh, that's why we've been uh, launching new micro-credential programs to get people the skills they need in a very quick way to take some of these opportunities. But it's going to be all hands on deck for many years to come to address that major challenge that we have. Now, how much is that, you know, recruiting people from other provinces or encouraging people to move here um, and also looking at immigration, but we don't really have a whole lot of places for them to live? Yeah, and that adds to challenges. I mean, uh, last year we saw 30,000 people come to B.C. That's the largest interprovincial migration in over 30 years. Uh, and so that's a sign that people see opportunities in British Columbia and think there's opportunities for their families. Which is great. When we welcome people, we're going to need people. But uh, you know, when with people coming in, there's challenges for housing, there's challenges for childcare, um, and so all these things, uh, although are positive, but it means we've got a lot of work to do uh, for all the supporting pieces of the economy that are critically important. Okay, so other provinces are going to start to open back up, and we know that. So they're obviously going to see a boost there. So how does BC remain competitive? Well, uh, we are competitive. The fact that, uh, you know, our employment levels held steady. I mean, we've taken a different approach here in British Columbia. Uh, obviously, measures when they're needed have been taken by a PHO. Um, but, you know, we're fortunate that we've had a um, majority of our economy uh, continue to operate in a fairly safe way throughout this entire pandemic. And also, I think what's critically important is we've made the investments in our public health care system throughout this pandemic that we're necessary to be able to keep the economy going. And that's quite significant. I know the, the premiers, um, leading premiers to 
have a conversation with the federal government today on the need for public health transfers so that the federal government can play a bigger role in making sure that our healthcare system remains resilient so that we can keep our economy going. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. Stay safe. You too. Uh, appreciate that. That's Ravi Kalon, who's the Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation. So the Statistics Canada jobs numbers came out this morning right across the country. And in a lot of provinces, it was not a, a great picture. Provinces like Ontario and others, because of lockdowns and, and Omicron, they lost jobs. Which What it meant was that the overall unemployment rate for Canada actually did worse in the month of January. But... BC, that wasn't the case. Again, the BC rate actually improved. We went from 5.4% unemployment in December to 5.1% in January. And a lot of that was led by gains in the retail sector. But of course, challenges remain. So how many help wanted signs have you seen lately? I see a ton of them out there. So I'm sure businesses are saying we need to, we need help in finding employees. Well, milk prices went up this week. You probably noticed that at the grocery store. We're talking almost 16% right here in BC. Now, inflation keeps going up too. Food does keep getting more expensive. Now, we've got these protests going on. We've got, you know, trucker convoys impacting border traffic, especially in southern Alberta. Is this all going to mean even higher prices? Well, joining us now is Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab and Professor in Food Distribution at Dalhousie University. Good morning, Sylvain. Good morning. Okay, let's talk about the milk prices to begin with, because we did know this price increase was coming, right? The Canadian Dairy Association told us this back in November. That's right. So federally, uh, the Canadian Dairy Commission is charged with the task of calculating how much it costs to produce milk. And uh, so they recommend an increase to properly compensate dairy farmers. That percentage was 8.4%, a record, actually almost double uh, the previous record. So that was an attention grabber. That was about, um, I'd say, three months ago. And so we were expecting, so this uh, uh, came into effect on February 1st, so this week. And so we were expecting fluid milk, uh, I guess unprocessed milk to uh, to be uh, more expensive across the country, which is really what's happening right now. Uh, with dairy products, uh, once we've gone through the uh, different inventories all over the place, uh, we're expecting you know yogurt, cheeses, uh, other dairy products to uh, to become more expensive. Unfortunately, in uh, in weeks to come. Okay, so if they were saying it was eight percent, then why were we seeing the type of price increases that were much more than that? Well, you're going to have to ask grocers and processors, but here's the thing. Often dairy farmers will say, well, we, we, we're, we're uh, paying more, we're costs, the costs are actually much higher. Uh, but the reality is that uh, in processing, uh, other than input costs, other things have actually gone up in price, uh, costs to pay people. Uh, there's been some disruption in the supply chain. And what I mean by that is it's getting more complicated to get equipment, to get packaging. Uh, all of these th- things have actually accumulated and uh, are making uh, processors' lives more difficult. That's the thing. And in distribution, it's the same thing. So by the time the product gets to, our consum- to, to the consumers, us, uh, many factors have actually come into play. Okay, because that's the price then for the raw milk. So obviously there's more prices 
being put on top of that. Exactly. Okay. So, but that's not the only thing that we've seen increases in recently too, right? It does feel like everything across the board is going up. Absolutely. So, uh, but I'd say that right now we are expecting the dairy sector, the section of the grocery store to be, uh, to be the big problem, like uh, meat last year. Meat was really the big one last year. We don't expect uh, prices to go up as much for meat this year, uh, but we are expecting dairy, produce, and bakery to be issues uh, for consumers looking for deals. The center of the store, again, procurement has been a problem uh, because of, of supply chain issues. Uh, you should expect you know, holes here and there, empty shelves here and there, but nothing really major. Uh, but don't expect, do not expect any loss leading going on or promotions. Uh, right now, they're just, they're just discouraged. Right. And so it's a combination then of factors, it sounds like, Sylvain, because not only are the individual producers, especially here in BC, right, with all the flooding that we had, uh, having more of a strain, you've got all the other additional kind of national issues. Yeah, no, absolutely. So this is not just, in fact, it's not just about Canada. It's it's around the world. So right now, our food inflation rate is about 5.7%. It's actually worse in the U.S. than the U.K. So uh, this is a global phenomena. It's not just about Canada. Um, so that's really what's what's going on right now. So don't don't blame necessarily the Canadian food industry. It's really tough for them. Uh, for the for the industry to really try to keep uh, prices as low as possible. It's going to be really tough for the next, I would say, six to nine months. Really? Okay, so how often do they yep. kind of revisit the issue of the price increase? Uh, as an industry, you mean? Or Yeah, like how often does the Canadian dairy, how, do the, how often do they do that? Oh, for dairy, for dairy in particular, that's once a year. So once a year, uh, they have until November 1st to provide a recommendation. So, so typically we hear from them in, in October and increases starts in February. That's, it happens every year. But this year was, uh, was a bit of a shocker because 8.4% is a lot of money. It's uh, six cents more per liter for farmers. And, uh, and by the way, industrial milk in Canada is the most expensive in the world already, even before the 8.4%. It's actually three times more expensive than, uh, than the industrial milk you would find in the United States. Really? Like why? Yep. I, it's just not, I mean, our sector is not that competitive. I mean, it's, we have supply management and supply management protects smaller farms. Uh, so our our farms are much smaller and and not very competitive. So really, prices uh, are not fixed to make the industry competitive. Prices are set to support farmers, and farmers aren't necessarily there to uh, provide a competitive product. They're there to provide a high-quality product only, no matter how much it costs to make. Right, so we just have to get used to this for now. Sylvain, thank you for your time. 
All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab, talking and explaining about the increase that you saw of milk prices. This was happened right across the board, right across the country. It was a pretty big price increase this week in BC. On average, it was probably 15% and higher. As so many people pointed out to me, you're absolutely right. Because this week, the deposit also kicked in for milk containers. I mean, you can return it and you can get that money back. But it doesn't stop the hurt of when you go to pay and think this is so much higher than what I was paying a couple of weeks ago. It is. So and on top of that 15% on average increase in the milk price, you're also getting the return it price now on top of that. But again, that can be returned. You can get that money back. But for a lot of people, it just was not the right time to be doing that. I know the prices are already crazy at the grocery store.